Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Okay, full confession time. One of my favorite things about sitting in the interviewer's seat is getting to talk to authors who know their material inside and out. There's a lot of speculation out there in internet land, especially in true crime internet land. A lot of rumor and hearsay and loose cannon opinionating. And amid the whirlwind of digital discourse, I have always found it a great comfort to speak to someone who relies on old-fashioned methods, is from the area they're writing about, and knows it like the back of their hand. This isn't about the debate between typewriters and laptops. This is a simple question of depth versus breadth. And I know where my money goes every single time. That's why it's so refreshing to speak to Jane Terzillo, veteran author of 10 books and longtime rooted resident of Northern Ohio about which she writes. The people in Jane's books aren't just cases. They are men and women she's known or grew up knowing about because they lived in the next town over. And she speaks about them with the kind of easy familiarity that you'd hear, not just in the newsroom, but around the dinner table. Now, let me say, Newsrooms are a place she knows well, too, as you'll soon hear, as we learn about her newest book, Northern Ohio Cold Cases, soon to be published by the History Press. But sit back, relax, and allow Jane to invite you to a part of the country where everybody knows everybody, both for better and for worse. Jane, welcome to Crime Capsule, and congratulations on your upcoming book. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So your book comes out in just a couple of weeks. Are you excited? I, I, I'm always excited. I, I just, you know, I can't wait to get it and hold it in my hands. You know, this is uh, an experience for you, which we are privileged to say you've had many, many times. <laughs> this is, as I recall, your 10th book. My 10th, yes, yes. Tell us, how did you get your start? Oh, wow. Well, I have, I guess I've probably written all my life. Um, and I started uh, when my son was uh, was a baby. I needed something to do while he was uh, napping. And um, I started writing some really horrible books. Um, I think I have four that are in the uh, trash now. <laughs> um <laughs> And then I then I turned to uh, to writing articles and uh, short stories, and I you know I soon became uh, published, and so I I got onto this crime thing. Um, I as I said, my my son was was small, and um, I belonged to a group of people that well, we had met in a uh, a writer's class uh, at the University of Akron. And uh, we went to a, uh, for the Western Reserve uh, magazine, which is no longer published. And um, they talked to us about, you know, writing for them. And so I wanted to, to get something that I could, you know, something that I was, got interested in that I could write, write about. And so if one of the other girls and I went to the uh, Summit County Historical Society and they led us upstairs into their library where all their books were. Well, I had my son with me and he was in one of those um, uh, umbrella strollers and uh, <laughs> I wasn't paying much attention to him. I was just rocking him back and forth and he pulled a big book out of the, out of the shelf and it, and it flew open to the sign, sign to the, to the um, story of an old-time counterfeiter uh, here in Cuyahoga Valley. And I started to read it, and I thought, that's it. And so that was kind of my, that was the beginning of, of my writing and getting published and, um, and writing crime. That is so interesting. I mean, you just, the, the pages fell fell just to it, that just fell, story yeah, and you got just hooked. fell open to that. So it was kind of like that was meant to be. That's really cool. And so did you ever end up working on that particular counterfeiter for one of your historical pieces? Oh, I pieces? did. Oh, I did. I, I published it in, uh, I think, three different places. And one of them was the New Orleans Times-Picayune. And um, I won a literary prize for it. 
My heavens, well, I'm just going to have to go downtown here on on Loyola Avenue and, and check out the old archives <laughs> and see if I can find your piece. That's fantastic. Uh, it was in 1976, I believe. Um, and from there, I kind of decided, well, if I wanted to write this stuff, maybe I should have a degree in it. So I, um, I, I went back to the University of Akron and got a two-year degree in criminal justice technology and while that, uh, while I was doing that, I met the, um, uh, Ken McCormick was his name. He was the head of the department. And he was kind of interested in me being, you know, liking to write. And so he said, well, bring me something that you've written. So, of course, I took him my, um, you know, my prize winning piece. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he said um, later on, he, he gave me a slip of paper with uh, a uh, weekly newspaper uh, name on it and a phone number. And he said, uh, they're looking for a, a writer, a staff writer. He said, I want you to call and, you know, um, and apply. So I did. And I got the, and I got the, um, uh, I got the job. Uh, however, it wasn't exactly what I had hoped. It was more the, what we used to call the kitty core and uh, the nur- nursing home beat. And, you know, and here I had, you know, background in criminal justice. There was another woman who had that beat, but, and I hate to say this, this really sounds awful, but she finally died. Oh. And so they, they didn't have a choice. They had to put me in there. And oh uh, so that's, you know, what started it all. So I have to stress, Jane, I mean, this is, this is a point of utmost um, importance. I have to stress to our listeners, that there are some words in the English language that only appear in a certain order in uh, in in the most rare and unusual and welcome of of instances. And there, there's a phrase that we hear about once every fifty years or so. That when when we hear it, it just sort of makes us think that there is hope, you know, for the universe after all. And that phrase is, "quote They're looking for a writer." <laughs> You know, they, nobody ever says that anymore, right? And so when you do hear it, there's just something really magical that happens inside your soul, um, which I, I think for those who are not involved in the book trade, um, you know, I just want to, I just really want to highlight the fact that you got to hear the magical phrase that we, we maybe hear once again. in our lifetime, you know, and and uh, and then we go from there. So that is that is wonderful. Now, let me ask you, you also have kind of a, another uh, really creative uh, thread to your backstory here, which is that you were an owner of a newspaper uh, for for some time, and you know, uh, my brother was a journalist, and and you know, he used to say that you, you know, there's something about having ink in your blood, you know, that sort of thing, right? But but you must have seen so many different kinds of stories come through from that from that vantage point, right? Well, uh, yes, this, the small newspaper that I uh, originally worked for, uh, five of us broke away from there and decided to start our own uh, newspaper, a bigger newspaper. And it's, I think it's probably one of the biggest um, uh, weeklies, maybe even in the state. Um, and of course I did all the, all the police and fire news and, um, uh, yeah, I, I got to see a lot, uh, you know, I, one of the police departments that I, uh, that I reported for was Bath Township. And you of course know who came out of Bath Township, don't you? Uh, remind me real quick. Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, good heavens. Uh, well, what a claim to fame. Yes. Yes. And so, um, I was riding with, I used to ride with the Fairlawn police uh, regularly, and um, they they were close to um, to Bath, and uh, it was mutual aid, so they would go back and forth if they needed, you know, they needed help. And so uh, this one night in, I think it was 78 or 79, I can't remember for sure, it was, it was in the summertime, uh, we got a call that... Uh, there was a disturbance at, uh, uh, it was kind of a no-tell motel at the time, and um, it was in Bath Township, and so my sergeant that I was I was riding with said, shall we drift on over, which is, 
you know, kind of police talk. <laughs> oh, lovely. And, and, you know, we weren't doing anything. So I said, sure, you know. So Dahmer was sitting in the back of the of the of the cruiser that night. He had been arrested. And that was before we knew that he had uh, murdered anybody. But he had already murdered his first victim, Stephen Hicks. Um, but I didn't. I only oh, wow. saw his his silhouette, if you will, because it was nighttime. But you were that close. Spooky. Ooh, spooky. Um, good heavens. That gives me a little chills just kind of thinking about it. Good heavens. So tell me this. In, in much of your work, you have focused on the region of northern Ohio. Now, is this because when you were working uh, in and around the journalism business, you know, we we love that phrase ripped from the headlines, right? And I'm just wondering, were, were you, for, for your early work, I mean, were you ripping these stories from the headlines because you had in fact written the headlines and the stories were just kind of, you know, right there waiting for you? Or were you interested in kind of a different take on that particular region? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I guess I really didn't think about it. I was just interested in the stories themselves and doing more research, more in depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, there's always more. There's always more to it than what's in the newspapers. Always. You know. So, and I, I kept what I, what I refer to as my hanging file. I uh, subscribed to a couple of different. Um, uh, newspaper sp- subscription services, and so I I collect stories. I I cut them out and I collect them and put them in my hanging file. If you know if they're interesting to me, in case I may need them sometime. And and you write in the introduction to this new book to Northern Ohio cold cases that your interest in this particular area dates all the way back to 1980, the first case that kind of peaked your attention as as far as unsolved and unresolved cases. I mean, we're, we're going back 40 years now. So take us to that moment. Okay. That's, that was, uh, th- that would be the story of Norm Liver, Norman L. Liver Jr. Um, he was a man that I knew most of my life. Uh, my dad owned a construction company. He had, um, uh, uh, and, and Norm, uh, was his executive vice president. He was a soils engineer. Um, he was very, very well thought of. He, uh, he was sought after for his experts, uh, expert testimony, um, other companies that needed him for different, uh, uh, oh, construction sites having to do with soils and, and things, sand and, and everything. Um, so he was, uh, you know, he was around most of, most of my life. And one morning he did, well, after my dad died, uh, my mother took over the, uh, took over the company and she didn't, she didn't know anything. I mean, she was, my dad was, uh, was a, an expert in, in some, in, uh, concrete and, um, uh, my mother knew nothing, but she, she just moved into his office, and so she relied on Norm a great deal because he knew the uh, he knew the people, he knew the sep- the superintendents, the workers, he knew all the uh, the people in the office, and he knew the business. And so, when he didn't come to work one day, uh, she got real nervous. She was kind of an exciting, excitable person anyway, and also um, the girl who sat at the front desk the uh, the receptionist, um, she also started to get kind of nervous because Norm was never late for work. Uh, and if he was going to be, he would call in and he hadn't called in. So finally, um, she, the girl at, um, Ellen Lane, uh, called where Norm lived and said, asked the, the manager, would you go down and, uh, uh, look and see if, Norm's car is in the garage. He lived in Lakewood and uh, in a high rise. And so the manager did that. He came back, called back and said, yes, his car is still in the, in the garage downstairs. So we waited a little bit longer. By that time, my mother had called me and asked me to come, to come there because I had worked at the company as well, although I wasn't working there at the time. And, um, so then she called back uh, to to the uh, uh, 
to the manager and said, can you do a wellness check? Can you, can you get into his apartment? And so he then called the owner and uh, they went in and they found him and he had been, uh, he had been killed. And um, so that's, that's kind of what, that's what started it. I just, you know, I, I collected everything out of the newspaper. And of course I probably knew more, you know, than, than the newspapers because I knew the man, you know. That is such a deeply personal start to, you know, looking into these, um, these types of cases. I can, I can only imagine what that must've been like for you, for him to be a, you know, family friend. And then, you know, to have to, to sort of work in the aftermath of, of his passing. Now, the book, the, the book that you have uh, coming out is a collection of about a baker's dozen of unsolved and cold cases from the northern Ohio region. And you have all types of folks from all sort of different walks of life. But today, we are going to talk about two in particular. You have two police chiefs, one at the very beginning of the book and one at the very end of the book to uh, to explore. And it's fascinating, Jane, because, you know, when you think about missing persons or when you think about unsolved cases or murders, you know, that have never been resolved, uh, I, I'm going to just go out on a little bit of a limb here and say it's probably more rare statistically that those individuals are members of law enforcement. Typically, the law enforcement are doing the investigating. Um, and, and each of these disappearances or unsolved cases, in, um, as, as it may be, you know, they, there's both compelling in very, very different ways, they're very different stories. And I thought we would just sort of take a look at each one um, Shall we start with Mel Wiley, the very first chapter of the book? Okay, so Mel, Mel is interesting because he here is a story not just of an unsolved murder, but it is also a story of a secret life. So tell us, uh, I say unsolved murder. Excuse me. We we're not sure that he was murdered. It's that's yes. It, I should I should be more careful with my with my language there. Uh, an unsolved case. Um, we we don't know what happened to Mel, but but we do know that he, he had a lot of secrets. So tell us about him. Well, he was a police chief of uh, Hinckley, Ohio. Uh, he had a background in law enforcement. He had been in the service. He had uh, he was a fingerprint expert. Um, he had. Uh, uh, he had been an investigator for the United States Department of Defense, um, and he became the uh, the police chief there in Hinckley. Hinckley is a very small town. It's known mostly for the returning of buzzards. Not quite the swallows of San Capistrano, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, bu- it's the buzzards in in, yeah. in Hinckley, and uh, he was. Um, everybody kind of thought that he was just the right person for the job. Um, he had a, he also was a writer. Uh, he loved to write. He had written a, um, uh, a police novel, uh, called Harvest of Madness. He also liked to write poetry. He was the, uh, he was a member of a, a writer's group in Medina. He lived in Medina, Ohio, which is right next to, to Hinckley. And, um, but he, he had a, you're right, he had a secret. Uh, actually, he had two secrets when I stopped to think about it. One was, he, well, he was divorced, um, and he had what he, what I think he thought was his, was a girlfriend, and she was married. But she told him that um, she was never going to divorce her husband and marry him. So that may have been, that may have played one part in what happened to him, okay? And we're, the, our time frame here is that we're in the 1980s, right? We're kind of in the mid-1980s. 1985, yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. 1985. Um, so the other thing is, it's like I said, he liked to write. And apparently he was even writing while I was on the job. But the thing that he was writing was pornography, 
and uh, <clears throat> that was that was found out. So after a while, how <laughs> I mean, what was what was is because I'm th I'm thinking I'm visualizing sort of small town police station, you know, sort of, um, you know, maybe my maybe my uh, imagination goes to like Columbo, where it's like you got all those desks and all the desks are out in the open, you know, and everybody's kind of you know milling around the the really bad filter coffee, you know what I mean, and everybody's kind of in view of everybody else at at all the times, you know, and you kind of hard to get away with, with surreptitious activity here. So like, how was he able to kind of do these things out from underneath the eye of his other colleagues? You know, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know. And, and nobody seems to know, except that the dispatcher, uh, the way, the way that we found this out was the dispatcher dug a bunch of this out of the waste paper basket. Oh, classic just, move. He yes. Would, he was just, well, he would just write this stuff and then he'd throw it in the wastebasket. I mean, how dumb is that? He's a police chief. Yeah, not smart. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, oh, boy. Uh, you oh know, boy. they didn't make a big thing out of it. I, I, I don't quite understand that. And then there was a patrolman uh, that said he was going to uh, call attention to this illicit love affair and... um but n nothing was ever, and a lot of the police reports came up missing. Convenient. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm not sure whether they were Hinkley police reports, but I do know that I could not get any police reports out of Medina. How interesting. Okay. Yeah, and I and I know that there were police reports because I spoke with a uh, you know he was a Cleveland Plain Dealer reporter at the time that all of this happened, and he had seen uh, police reports, Medina police reports. And these would have been internal investigations that you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Now he had a very good friend who he had been friends with when he was on the sheriff's department, Medina County Sheriff's Department, and. This friend was was a uh, investigator, <clears throat> was an investigator, a detective, uh, still on the Medina Sheriff's Department, and uh, his name was uh, Jim Bigham. And I said they were friends. So, anyhow, he may have had something to do with that. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but anyhow, so this girlfriend broke up with him. Um, the uh, apparently the you know the uh, some of the pornography had been found, so he disappeared. He claimed <laughs> that he was going to go <laughs> just, just like July that. I mean, just one yeah. day he magically yeah. well, vanished. <laughs> he's, no, okay, he had. Um, yeah. uh, he had a, another girlfriend that had asked him to go swimming with him and he said no he, he just wasn't interested in swimming although later on right after all of this came to light he told her that he was going to go on it was on a sunday he said he was going to go swimming up at lake erie agewater park uh with a friend now when all of this came out uh well let me back up so uh, nobody thought, you know, or she didn't think anything of this, but uh, she did wonder why he wouldn't go swimming with her, but he would go up with this friend. So on this particular day, July 28th, 1985, uh, there was a car sitting in the parking lot there at Edgewater Park, and uh, it sat there and it sat there and it sat there. And finally, the park rangers started to get suspicious, so they opened it, and they found a neatly a uh, folded stack of clothing uh, with a uh, couple packs of cigarettes, which is, he smoked uh, like a chimney, I guess. Um, his police badge, uh, his, I uh, can't remember whether his, um, whether his badge was there or not, but, <clears throat> but anyhow, and his, his driver's license and some folding money. So they started to think, well, somebody's out there. Well, they called they called the uh, police department, and the police had said, oh, they didn't even re realize that he hadn't come into work. 
which was kind of odd. And so then they started to drag the lake. I don't think they dragged the lake. I think they they sent some uh, uh, divers in. They couldn't find anything. And so this Jim Bigham and this um, uh, dispatcher went to his apartment and they were able to get in and they found that it was unusually neat because he was not very neat. He was kind of a rumpled type guy. He cut his own hair and, you know, he had, and he had cats. Well, the cats were there, but there was plenty of food left for them. The refrigerator was empty except for a jar of mayonnaise. And what this Jim Bigham found was uh, not what was there, but what was not there, which was the manuscript that he had been working on, uh, Harvest of Madness, his book of poetry, uh, his uh, music, and oh, was there one other thing I can't remember? Oh, and his scrapbook and his um, address book, I think, if I remember correctly. Those things were gone. But laying on the kitchen table was a um, a slip uh, for his uniforms at a at a uh, uh, a dry cleaners. So this Bigham thought that's strange because uh, uh, Wiley never cleaned his his never sent his uniforms to the cleaners. So Bigham went to the cleaners and he found uh, they had fished out a. Uh, an Amtrak um, schedule. And there was an Amtrak uh, station quite close to where the car was found. Uh, so then they're thinking, plus the, the, the um, park rangers said, you know, if there was a body, it would have it floated up by now. So then they started looking at his typewriter. Now, you know, we had no computers at that time. Let me say one thing, Jane, just for the benefit of our of our listeners, because it, it is actually important. You know, in this day and age, you know, we think about a book manuscript, and you can put a book manuscript on on a little flash drive that's as, you know, as big as your thumb. You can stick it in a pocket and you can walk out with it. You can put 10,000 manuscripts on a little flash drive, you know, as big as your thumb and, and disappear with it, no problem. But in the 80s, of course, there, there that media wasn't there. Computers were barely coming into, you know, existence in home use. You know, a manuscript was a big old honking stack of paper that was 200, 300, 400 pages, right, exactly. And, like, you had to put it in a briefcase it had its own special carrying, you know, kind of requirements. Um, it could be set on fire, you know, faster than you would like to imagine. You know, there are all sorts of ways to, if it's physically lost, it's gone. There's no reproducing it at that point. Y you know, so so this notion that the manuscript was not found um, or that the book was not found. I mean, we're talking hard physical evidence, and we're talking a lot of hard physical evidence, and that would have been absolutely a felt absence. And this is this is forty years is 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 an eternity in write, writing technology. You know, the last forty years have been an eternity in writing technology and those those developments. So I just want to stress that because you know, writer to writer here, of course, we get real interested in when issues of manuscripts come up, but for evidential purposes. It's even more important. Well, one other thing I, I forgot to mention was that uh, one of the former police chiefs said another oddity was that the in the car that uh, the seat was moved forward. That um, you know, as if a, a shorter person, he was five eleven, I believe, so that a shorter person had been driving it. So anyhow, back in back in the uh, police department, they start looking at his typewriter, and back then the typewriter ribbons uh, were one-time use. So they started looking at the at the ribbons, and he had written a a letter to this woman that he was you know that he was in love with, um, and I don't have I don't know whether I can find any of the <clears throat> any of what was on there. Oh. I can read a little bit of it. Uh, he said, a couple of nights ago, long after dark, when I felt no one in particular, you included, might see me, 
I took a walk that eventually led me down your street and past your house. And he's and he went on to say that he realized that they could never be together. Okay. Then he says, in three or four months, you've taken a man and have given him some of the major things he's pretty much desperately wanted most of his life. Love, affection, a sense of real purpose for someone who counts in a great deal to him, a sense of being worthwhile after all, and lastly, a realization that you, for one, pretty much like him and want him for the person he happens to be. If that's not leaving a mark by you of some kind, I certainly don't know what is. True, it's only one item, but don't you think what you've done there, that that makes for possible numbers if you were inclined to keep a running score. Quality, not quantity. That's what they found. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're gonna get. You're gonna hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. You know, Bigham gets gets into this. They find that, uh, you know, of course, he was never going to go swimming because he uh, had ra- um, he had burns on his body from uh, uh, radioactive material when he was in the service, and so he was always he was always covered up. He had it on his arms and such. So you see, he would have never gone swimming. His ex-wife. They talked to his ex-wife. And she felt that he that he disappeared and that he probably went back to San Francisco or to Fort Ord where he was in the service because she said he always loved San Francisco, in particular Chinatown. Although there were other uh, friends that said that he had friends in, in Florida. So we just don't know. All, all we can surmise is that I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it, Jane? Because I mean, here here you have a police chief who's very familiar with you know evidence trails and that sort of thing, and he leaves one. I mean, we don't know how much of it, it's a little hard to say how much of his evidence trail was deliberate and how much was accidental, right? It sounds like there's kind of a mix of both kinds of pieces of evidence there, which is what makes it so so sort of delicious, right? For, as a mystery, it's sort of, you know, okay, now we got to figure out where was, where you know, what was he thinking at what point? Um, you know, much of it sounds pre-planned and then the other portions like the typewriter ribbon or the, or the car seat maybe were a little bit more uh, accidental. But I mean... <sighs> What is what is your what is your theory of the case? Let me ask you that. Oh, I think he went back to uh, uh, to San Francisco. He's I don't know whether he's let's see I I forget how old he was at the time, um, but he's he would be up in his eighties if he's still alive. But like I say, he smoked like a chimney, so you know who knows? I don't know. I suppose you know if somebody wanted to try to track him, uh, you know they might look at uh, writers clubs. In, in San Francisco, which I'm sure there's dozens Billions, of. yes. <laughs> billions of, yeah. Uh, he also was a train buff. He was a, a model train buff. And, um, you know, there's mo- model train shows all over and uh, clubs that he may, have, uh, he may have joined. One of the things that I learned from, you know, riding with the, with the police and, and even talking with police in, in doing these stories is that, Sometimes the best way to track a person is to remember, you know, their hobbies and their 
the things that they like to do because they don't give those things up. You know, what is so tantalizing about this particular case, of course, is that somewhere, assuming he didn't, you know, dispose of it, somewhere in the world <laughs> is this unpublished novel called Madness Harvest of Madness, yeah. okay. you know, and, and you know, is it still on these... Uh, you know, hundreds of sheets of of sort of dot matrix printer paper or, you know, typewriter, typewriter paper, you know, that sort of thing. Um, did he ever do anything with it? Mel, if you're out there, mm-hmm. you know, like check in with his buddy, <laughs> like tell us what's going on. Um, we'd love to read your book. <laughs> right? yeah. But I mean, it's it's one of these sort of fascinating uh, little threads, which is actually quite a large thread. And if he tried to publish it under a different name, you know, or if he tried to publish the book under a different name, not just a pseudonym for himself, but, you know, to get it out there, who knows? Yeah, exactly. And I thought about that. But I think that he had talked so much about the book and talked about the plot and everything that if it did show up on Amazon and somebody bought it, they would recognize it. Yeah, yeah. Even if they, you know, even if they changed, and I'm sure he changed his name. Almost certainly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, and and if he tried to publish it, I'm sure that he would have changed its name. How intriguing! There is such a um, such a depth to this particular mystery. There's so many layers to it that um, it's just kind of hard not to to speculate as to what all those possibilities might be. And I certainly hope that some some aspiring gumshoe out there takes up the case and goes on the hunt. You know, the mid-80s were not that long ago, and there would be people with living memory of that era, hopefully, that would, you know, if you were to take a pic, you've got plenty of pictures of Mel, you know, um, of, you know, Chief Chief Wiley, right? I mean, there's no shortage of, of likenesses out there to take around to the old haunts of the... Um, you know, the, uh, the fish market or, or, you know, uh, anywhere in the Bay. Right. I mean, you never know. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's more, there's more that, uh, I haven't talked about, of course, that's in the, uh, uh, that's in the chapter. So. Well, let's switch gears and take a look at another police chief. Thank you for that, Jane. That was absolutely fascinating. And yes, absolutely. Listeners, please, uh, you know, if you think you have a lead on the case or you want to take it up yourself, Jane's book comes out in a couple of weeks and you can read much more about about the disappearance of uh, Chief Mel Wiley there. But let's take a look at the last chapter in your book, because here here you have um, it. This, unfortunately, uh, is a um, a case that involves the death, the confirmed death of a police officer in the line of duty and um very, very difficult for, you know, the force at that time. And he left a, a you know, a proud, proud legacy behind um, of, a, of a faithful public servant. Um, but there's, there's still questions, you know, that, that surround it. And um, even though some new evidence and testimony has come to light over the years, it, it never really was resolved. Um, so we're going to go back a little bit further in time for this particular case to 1970, yeah. Um, so tell us, tell us about about Robert. He became the. Uh, we're going up to uh, Ashtabula County, uh, Rock Creek, uh, is a small town up there, um, and uh, they had um, their their police uh, was mostly the sheriff's department for for a long time, and um, but then around in the nineteen sixties. Uh, they had a group of young men that um, they called them the Rock Creek Gang, and they just just—they were just disturbed everything from you know what I could find out, and <clears throat> they also uh, ran a chop shop, and they—I guess cars would be stolen out of Cleveland and brought up there, and then they would. Um, uh, you know, chop up these cars and yep, scrap them. And yeah. uh, yep. of course, they didn't. You know, they didn't want anybody to know what they were doing. So they just pretty much. Oh, they. You know, they got into bar fights and they were just. You know, so the uh, sheriff's department was because this was this is a large county, uh, and they, the sheriff's department were they were stretched kind of thin. Uh, 
to patrol the entire the entire county. So <clears throat> in 1970, they um, the mayor of Rock Creek decided that he wanted a police department. So he uh, started out with two different police chiefs, and they only lasted each one lasted only about six months. And it was because of because they would get threatened, and it was because of this Rock Creek gang. So, uh, in July of 1969, uh, the uh, uh, the mayor swore in Robert Hamrick, Robert Gilbert Hamrick. He was 29 years old. Uh, he had been in the service. He had been a uh, uh, a patrolman in um, Geneva on the lake. Uh, so he kind of knew what he was doing, and um, he just wasn't going to be bullied. Well, he'd also been in, he'd also done time himself, which is a really fascinating detail about him. Yeah, yes, yeah. But you see, this was back in the 60s, okay? So yes, he had done time for uh, 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 a robbery with a couple other guys, but he got out, you know, sooner than, you know, than later. And turned his life around, got married, and he had three little kids, and um, he became the uh, police chief. And but, uh, un- but this was all unbeknownst to the mayor. The mayor did not know that he had a record. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. he just you know, I guess either forgot it or just. <laughs> Or, or someone on his staff did not do their due diligence, for heaven's sakes. I like to think that that qualified him even more, you know, for the jobs. <laughs> you know, I think, it, I think it did because, you know, he knew this, you know, this mindset, okay? And I, I, and I think back then they probably didn't do uh, their due diligence as much as, you know, what, <laughs> what they do today because it's much easier to do it today, you know? Um, so anyhow, the first thing he did was uh, he he uh, tried to arrest a one of the gang members. Uh, this was a guy that was in trouble. For, uh, he had a long a long rap sheet, okay. And uh, so he in the evening he was so he was he was uh, patrolling around town in the evening and he found this guy at one of the bars, and he talked to him and he said. Um, you know, there's a warrant out for you. And he said, I, I, I got to take you in, put you in jail. And the guy said, no, he said, um, um, he said, I'll tell you what, he says, let's wait till morning. And he says, I'll report to you in the morning and, uh, you know, and, and things will be fine. So Hamrick, Chief Hamrick said, okay. He said, but you don't get into any trouble tonight. And, uh, you know, yeah, and I'll see you first thing in the morning. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. So, of course, the guy does not show up in the morning, naturally. And instead, what he does is he goes in and uh, threatens the person who had uh, uh, filed the police, uh, the police fi- file against him, okay? So, um, so Hamrick goes looking for him. Well, this guy was was quite a driver, so he had an, uh, he had a pretty speedy car, and uh, so Hamrick finds him, and he starts to to chase him. The the guy's not going to pull over. So, and we're talking this is a you know a small town. So Hamrick goes. Uh, his police cruiser is not all that fast, so he goes to uh, another one of his of a friend who was a. Um, another cop who had a, a Pontiac GTO and those were fast. So he, yeah, so he takes his, uh, uh, his uh, lights and he puts it on the GTO and uh, they take off and they start looking for this guy again. And sure enough, they find him and they give chase and they're chasing like 90 miles an hour. And um, they, they, uh, uh, they go down a dip and up a dip, I guess, and Hamrick decides to shoot at the car, and he's going to shoot above the car just to, to scare him into stopping. Only the bullets go through the car, and uh, the guy has a, a passenger, and one of the bullets hits, hits the passenger. So he, Hamrick got in a little bit of trouble for that, but he did get his man and got him arrested, okay? <clears throat> So, 
after that, uh, he and this friend of his that had the GTO, they uh, find out that they're, oh, he gets looking at this barn, okay, that uh, seems to be deserted. And he's suspicious of the barn. And so he, uh, he, he and the, uh, the, the, uh, the friend, they, they keep looking at it and they finally find that there's a, uh, uh, that this, there's a, uh, it's a Corvette. It was a 1969 Corvette was sitting in there. And so they, they hide in the barn. The two of them hide in the barn. It's very, very bold. I like that. Yeah. These, yeah, pretty soon these two guys come driving up in a pickup truck and they come in and they start talking about, well, do you want this part? And do you want that part? They're going to take it up, you know. So at that point, Hamrick and uh, Chapman was his friend's name, um, come out of hiding and they said, okay, we're, you know, we're police and you're under arrest. So they find that this car was uh, stolen out of uh, uh, where I can't remember where, and it, and it was it had been stolen on uh, Christmas Eve. So this, of course, uh, makes these Rock Creek uh, gang really mad because now he's really getting into their uh, their bread and butter. He's yeah will. hitting their supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right, right. So. Um, so anyhow, so they start uh, uh, calling his wife and telling his wife uh, when he isn't home and telling his wife that he better get out of town and uh, just quit all this stuff. You know, they don't want him as, as police chief anymore. But I think because he had been in prison and he had, uh, you know, um, had a, a, a record that he wasn't going to be bullied. And... And I think he was, uh, as I remember, I think he was pretty tall and um, he just wasn't going to be bullied, okay? So anyhow, this one night, uh, it's around one o'clock in the morning, one fifty or something like that, uh, he's out patrolling and he calls in uh, to the dispatcher and says that he has a, uh, he has a, uh, he's in pursuit of a vehicle. And then a few minutes later, he calls back in and he says, uh, uh, I've turned off from Route 45 onto Calendar Road, and I'm still in pursuit. And that was it. They never heard any more from him. So the uh, this chapman was, um, he was... Uh, about 30 miles away, and he thought, well, maybe he would come up and see what uh, uh, what Hamrick was into, and but he got in an accident and had to stay and wait for the Ohio State Patrol to come and take an accident report. So after that, he thought he didn't hear any more about uh, Hamrick on the on the radio or anything, so. He just went on about his, his way. And finally, then the dispatcher again came on and said, you know, uh, he, he came out and asked for asked Chapman to come and check on, on Hamrick. He said, I haven't heard from him in, you know, quite a while. So Chapman goes down this, uh, and the road was, um, it was gravel, but it was, at the time, it was winter. It was in March, and it was kind of icy. So uh, Chapman starts down the road, and sure enough, he finds uh, that Hamrick is, uh, um, has run into a tree, that he's skidded off the road and run into a tree. So he stops, he, you know, he calls in, and he, and he tells him what has happened. He sa and his words are, uh, Chief Hamrick is up a tree. And so he, he goes to the, to the cruiser, and he... Uh, and he sees that Hamrick is, um, in you know, in a bad way, he's bleeding, uh, and he's kind of laying across the uh, the seat. And he tries to get him out of the uh, the uh, pass or out of the driver's side door, but that door is uh, is jammed. So he goes around to the other side, gets him gets a blanket, 
and puts it around him uh, to try to comfort him. And he calls for an ambulance and he calls for a tow truck. And then uh, by then, Corporal Johnson, who eventually became uh, the sheriff, um, he came to help out. And they get uh, they get him out of the out of the uh, car and put him in the ambulance. And uh, then the um, they radio ahead and the police clear all the roads to the hospital. And uh, they get him to the hospital there in Ashtabula. And they take they take all his personal effects, and they give them to his uh, give him to his family. They soon at the hospital they soon realize that he is in too bad a shape that they they are not a trauma one uh, hospital. So they decide to take him to uh, Cleveland Clinic. So again, um, by this time it's like six o'clock in the morning or so. Uh, so again, the police clear all the roads to the Cleveland Clinic. They want they wire ahead to all the all the police departments and they you know, and so that they can get him there as quick as they can. And um, he died, of course. So the rumors started just like right after. There's a couple of wrinkles here which are worth observing. I mean, one is the you know the tragedy of the fact that his. Uh, fellow officer Chapman was held up. You know, the, this story could have turned out very, very dif- differently had that other accident, you know, not taken place. I mean, it could if, have gotten to him sooner. You know, yeah. I mean, a few minutes or even a you know an hour or two could have made just all the difference in the world. And um, it's hard to read this story and just reflect on that kind of little little butterfly effect, you know, uh, taking taking place right there. I mean, the other the other aspect is that you know. We, we just don't know what happened in those final hours of his life. And you went so far as to investigate the actual dispatcher's report, which is really interesting. I thought your research on that was was really compelling. But th- there are these questions, you know, what, what actually transpired. And, um, you know, you say rumors, and, and the rumors are born out of such a lack of knowledge that it's, it's hard to stop them once they get started. Uh, well, true. Um, the, and the rumors started, the rumors were that um, the Rock Creek gang wanted to get rid of him. So whoever he was chasing um, came back and hauled him out of, the, uh, out of his car and beat him senseless with a nightstick or, or whatever. Okay. Um, and, but the... You know, they they never knew who, um, and they didn't know who he was chasing. And, you know, was the chase set up so that they could get him out of town and, and get him uh, in a place where he wouldn't have any help? Um, they claimed that uh, they said, well, you know, this was borne out because there was a lot of blood beside the car that, you know, that he had been hauled out of the car and, and beaten. Well, the blood came off from the the blanket that Chapman had put around him. Um, and uh, when when they took him out of the car, the, the blanket fell off from him, and that's where the blood came from. Uh, also, Chapman, um, uh, as he was investigating the accident, he found that there were no footprints in the snow around around the car. Um, and they found that uh, all of his uh, his gun, uh, his holster, um, what else, his nightstick, uh, a couple other things, they were all with him or they were in the car. They were found. They weren't missing like, you know, what the what the conspiracy was. They say, well, his gun is missing and his and his nightstick is missing. And but you see, there had been these threats, and so of course, people are gonna wonder. They're gonna wonder if uh, you know, they're gonna put two and two together and maybe come up with five. There's a little bit of suspicion which is cast on this gas station attendant, right? Who seems to have been, you know, uh, had some knowledge or seen some of the individuals that evening. And it was kind of this early, I, I won't call it a red herring because, you know, there's probably more to the story than we'll ever know with, with this guy. But it, it was a lead that just didn't pan out the way that everybody had hoped. 
Well, of course, when uh, uh, when Chapman and Johnson and then the detectives, they started to investigate, they they called dispatch and they said, what was the car that, what was the license plate of the car that uh, uh, Hamrick was chasing? So they came back with the license plate, they traced it, and it came back to a woman that lived in the next town over. So they went to visit her, and she said, well, I don't have the car. She said, I, uh, I'm leaving for Florida tomorrow, so I dropped my car off at the Sunoco station to have it all checked out so that I can, I can drive to Florida. So they go to the, uh, uh, the Sunoco station where uh, she had dropped the car off, and they see the car there, uh, and the uh, station attendant is uh, changing a, a tire on it. And it's all muddied up and everything, and uh, it's a, it was a javelin. And so they, they think, well, you know, this is kind of weird because... Uh, the woman that owned it then, she looks at the car and she said, my car was clean. And she said, and I had more than a quarter of a tank of gas in it. So, uh, and also she'd had stuff on the back of the, uh, you know, up in the back window. And it had all come forward as if, you know, the car, somebody had slammed on the brakes or, or whatever. So, um, so they started to question the, oh, and there was a cigarette butt uh, on the floor, and she didn't smoke. So they start to question the uh, station attendant, and um, uh, he said, well, you know, he drove a car that was around the corner of the, of the station, and so uh, Johnson go, goes around, and he lays his hand on the, on the hood, and it's, it's cold, it had not been, you know, it hadn't been any place. And, and the windows were kind of frosted over. So it hadn't been any place. So finally, the guy admits and he said, well, he said, yeah, he says, I, I took it out. I took her car out for a test drive. And so that's, that was the story there. And I, I, I won't go into the end of it, but. Sure, sure. Let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a very sad case, obviously, because, um, it, it feels in so many ways, you know, preventable or that, that justice was never, never done. Um, and we won't spoil, you know, the outcome of the later investigation and so forth. Um, but whatever happened to, it's 50 years ago now, um, whatever happened to the Rock Creek gang? I mean, were they ever kind of brought to justice as a whole? Did they just sort of fizzle out over time? I mean, what was the end of that story? Well, a lot of them are dead. Um, some of them, um, later took lie detector tests and, and passed. One has now lives in Texas. I don't think anybody was ever brought to, uh, for any of their, well, the one, yeah, the one guy that, uh, that Hamrick, uh, arrested off the bat. And who knows, maybe there's a deathbed confession waiting out there somewhere today, but it's kind of hard to hold out hope at this point. It's been a long time. <laughs> You never know. You never know. Um, you you write about so many different kinds of cases in this book, uh, Jane, and it really is fascinating to kind of read through and get the the breadth of uh, the mysteries that still lie unresolved in northern Ohio. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, we've talked about two in detail, but is there one that you would just want to kind of tease us with, maybe one that you particularly enjoyed working on or thought was sort of especially compelling in some kind of way? If, there, if there's a little, you know, a little worm on the end of the hook you'd like to, to dangle, you know, in front of us. I'm, I'm curious, just as, a, as kind of a researcher and writer, if there was one that stood out for you. There was a couple in uh, um, Trumbull County uh, who disappeared and in the, in the 90s. Uh, they had five kids, and the kids went off to school one morning, and everything seemed to be eh, pretty normal. Uh, the dad was a uh, over uh, over the road truck driver. Uh, the mom was she was uh, a mother and a housekeeper. Uh, they had no debt, um, no enemies that they really could you know could think of. Um, 
and they disappeared one. Uh, the kids went off to school, and when they came home, uh, <clears throat> the kids, uh, their mom and dad were gone, as, you know, was their truck. Um, they did find, the police did find that a uh, they took a, a fairly large amount of money out of the uh, out of their bank account. They uh, they drove up to a, a drive-in window at the bank, and the tellers said, "Well, there were three people in the car. There was uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Marzik and um, Mar no, can't now I can't say the name, uh, <clears throat> John." The father was in the car, and uh, the mother was in the car, and there was a third man, but couldn't really get you know get a good uh, a good uh, view of what he looked like, except that he was a man, and that they but they they um, they took out a large amount of money, but not their entire um, their not their entire bank account, which at the time was something like. I don't know, $1,500 or something, and <clears throat> which at that time probably was, you know, quite a bit for a family. And it was money that they had, um, uh, that they had borrowed for him to put new tires on his truck. Uh, so, but they only took like eight or $900 out. So they don't know who the man was. Uh, they found the truck, um, parked in a in a parking lot somewhere and it was all covered with mud as if it had been off road and they said that just was not like uh the owner john uh <clears throat> because um he he always he, he kept his uh uh his pickup truck in just you know sterling condition so and so far we don't know much about what happened to them. We'll leave it there then. For heaven's sakes, don't don't. I mean, <laughs> who who knows? What a wow! That there that that's the makings of like a Cormac McCarthy novel. You know, from the from the jump, that is um, that is really that's really compelling. Um, so now we all have to go <laughs> read that chapter in your book <laughs> and try to come up with our own theories. Um, well, I hope you read the whole book. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Jane, this has been such a pleasure. We really appreciate your taking time for us to come on to the show. Let me ask you this. How can folks uh, follow up with you if they want to find uh, your books? What's the best way for them to do so? They're in, bo in bookstores. Um, I guess they're even in like CVS and uh, some of the grocery stores. Well, they're on Amazon. They're all on Amazon. Um, and I have a website, which is uh, com, And I'm soon going to be starting a newsletter. Thank you so much. This this really has been a lot of fun, and congratulations again on the upcoming publication of Northern Ohio Cold Cases, and who knows what might happen in the months to come once the book comes out. You know, we've we've had some guests on who've seen things come to light with the with you know some publications and tips tips and ideas. You know, suggestions come out of the woodwork. You never know what might happen. I I did have one my. Uh, one of my books, Ohio Heists, an embezzler. He actually was an embezzler that stole $215,000. His name was Ted Conrad. Um, and I did uh, get a tip from someone, and I handed it over to the U.S. Marshals, and they closed the case because of it. So it does happen. That's amazing. So it, so it does happen, yeah. Wow. Okay. We're going to have to have you back on to tell us just about that sometime. Jane, what a win. Oh, sure. Amazing. Well, on that note, uh, thank you again and congratulations and we'll see you soon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's been our pleasure. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming 
at killerpodcasts.com. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.